We start today with the public sector strike action in B.C., rationing in effect at B.C. liquor stores. This one is hitting bars, pubs, and restaurants. They're running out of booze at the bars. This is not good. Strike action escalating now to other public services. Buckle up. This could get worse here. I've got Union President Stephanie Smith standing by. First, let's get the latest here from Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. It's been a weekend that's seen drinks pouring out quicker than the supply has been pouring in. It's just going to be a struggle for everybody. The BC Liquor Distribution Branch began rationing the number of liquor items an individual bar or restaurant can buy each day, only allowing the sale of three of the same item because of an ongoing strike at distribution centers. Friday and Saturday night saw the drinks flow. Sunday, the hangover. We had a good weekend, or we've had a good weekend, so it made a big dent. So restaurants have had to shake things up, substituting ingredients where they can. We've had calls, so what can we substitute this for now? Because we don't have this anymore. How can we substitute this? So it's just going to get worse. Restaurants with limited ability to restock. This is not going to last very long. So we're all we're going to see shortages. I think Wednesday this week we're going to see a lot of people in trouble. At BC liquor stores. Empty hole, empty hole, empty hole. Missing items on shelves, frustrating customers. Everybody's nervous that they can't buy more than three of what they want. Uh, with my guest, Stephanie Smith, president of the BC General Employees Union. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Stephanie, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Mike. Okay, Stephanie, what do you say to these workers who are stuck in the middle here? We just heard in that report about the potential for some small businesses, bars, pubs, and restaurants laying off staff. Like, what would you say to people who could be laid off here as, as a result of this job action? Well, I I mean, I'm certainly hopeful that it won't come to that. You know, I mean, what I've been saying is that I hope people will continue to go to their favorite restaurants and, you know, enjoy a wonderful meal that they don't have to, uh, you know, prepare for themselves and that uh, they tip all of their servers appropriately. Um, But, Mike, this isn't a both sides issue. Uh, The power to solve this and, you know, to meet what I believe is a shared goal here is to get this strike over as quickly as possible has been and always has lain with government. Um, They have the power to end this strike very, very quickly. Um, And they know from us what it will take to get us back to the table. And we have been crystal, crystal clear from the very beginning of this round of negotiations what it was going to take for us to get a deal that we could take out to our 33,000 public service members and have them vote yes for. Okay, but I'm thinking specifically about a, a bartender or a waitress out there, someone who has nothing to do with this dispute and are likely making a lot less money than your 33,000 members who are stuck in the middle of this and potentially going to be, be laid off. Like, what would well, you say, what would you I, I, say again, specifically to that person? Again, what I would say person? is that, you know, government has the power to end this strike, and they, uh, you know, certainly I feel compassion for anyone. Um, our members are exercising what is their constitutional right, uh, protected under the Charter Rights of Freedoms, to withdraw their labor in support of bargaining. Uh, it yeah. is you know, a last-ditch tool that we have been forced by government's decisions to exercise. And um, by their very nature, strikes are disruptive. And so for those who are being, you know, impacted by that disruption, 
pick up the phone, call your MLA. We have a, a click-to-send tool on the BCGU website. They can email, they can tweet at their MLAs. Because, Mike, the most astonishing thing, it's now been a week today as of 3.30 this afternoon. It will be exactly one week that we've been on strike. It has been deafening silence and disappointing silence from not just the NDP government, but every single MLA. No one has said a word. And as I said, government has the capacity and the ability to end this strike very quickly. Speaking to Stephanie Smith, she's the president of the union here with uh, thousands of workers uh, on facing job action here in British Columbia. What about the union has just announced this overtime ban? How is that going to work and how could that affect public services in B.C.? Yes, so uh, the committee really, again, was looking at, you know, what what next steps do we need to take? And one of the things that we've known for years, and, and you know, there have been massive holes in the public service. Um, you know, there, there were hiring freezes under the previous government. There was lots of layoffs under the previous government, and those holes haven't been filled. And so a number of ministries have really been reliant on the voluntary overtime of our members to get the work done because of understaffing, because of workload. And so as of today, we are telling our 33,000 members in the public service that unless the employer declares an emergency, we are asking you to refuse overtime. Now, of course, that won't include our members in the BC Wildfire Service during this fire season, but unless the employer declares an emergency, we're asking them to say no to any overtime. What What are the status of talks? Are any talks scheduled? As I said, uh, very deafening and very disappointing silence. Let me ask you about how far apart the two sides here. When you take a look at the government offer here, an 11% raise over three years, a $2,500 signing bonus. What? How is that an inadequate offer? Like, I think a lot of people listening could only dream about an 11% raise right now. Well, you know, again, I I would argue that I keep reading more and more statistics that actually don't say that, that in fact public sector workers, not just public service workers, have actually fallen behind many, many other workers in terms of wage increases. And, you know, I'll I'll go back to that tweet that Minister Callan put out saying that the average wage in B.C. rose by 5% annually over the last three years. Well, we know that public sector workers actually dragged that uh, average down because they only received 2% over the last three years. So um, what I would say, again, is that I do believe that there is a pathway to settlement. And what we said, as I said, from the very, very beginning is we need to see wage increases that allow our members to catch up. You know, we did internal polling. They're saying almost 50% of them are falling further and further into debt every month just to meet their basic needs. And just as importantly, we want to see some meaningful protection for those wage increases against rates of inflation, COLA, cost of living adjustments. Right. So the current inflation rate in the country, 7.6% in July. So that's roughly the the wage increase you're looking for. Like the government offer here, 11% over three years, that's what, about 3.6% a year. 
So and, you're looking for like you're looking for double, double that wages. Yeah, that percentage is based on the lowest wages. So I, it's uh, it's it's inflated in the way in which they've presented it. However, having said that, it isn't just about the percentage wage increase. I mean, that's the kind of thing we'll talk about. Ours was 5% or cost of living adjustments. How those cost of living adjustments are calculated is, you know, there's lots of different ways of looking at that. And you've mentioned the Canadian-wide inflation rates. Well, BC is the only province where we're continuing to see inflation go up. It did not go down in the same way that across Canada did. So, um, you know, again... What that does is it eats into people's uh, abilities to spend those wages, and that's another point right. that I've been making to the restaurant industry. People who can't meet their monthly bills aren't going to restaurants and bars. What do you say to people who are listening right now saying, well, hang on a sec, these public sector workers are already being paid a, a, a good wage. They've got gold, a gold-plated pension plan that people in the par- private sector can only dream of. And now what? They're going on strike for for even more. Like, how much does a let's take a liquor store worker for example? What is the average wage there for a, a unionized liquor store worker right now? Uh, so the entry wage, and again, all of these wages are public. People can yeah. go on the BCGU website and pull up, you know, the collective agreements. They're on the Labor Relations Board website. Um, you know, okay, we, you talk about uh, liquor clerks, for example. They are amongst the lowest in the public service, starting wage of, I, I believe, around $21, $22 an hour. BC Wildfire, their starting wage is less than $24 an hour. And, you know, I, I saw a, an advertisement for a dishwasher in Whistler, $35 an hour to start plus tips. And, you know, when you talk about pension plans, I think it's really important to remind listeners that pensions are deferred wages. These are wages that otherwise would have been on paychecks that have been deferred for retirement. So, um, you know, I would say that, in fact, we have seen within the private sector employers recognizing that to be able to recruit new people, they have to increase the wages. Workers are, have learned their worth. And they're yeah. saying, you know, if you want to keep us and you want to be able to bring new people into these sectors where we're going to need these workers, you have to have competitive wages. How far are you willing to take this? Could we see strike action escalate here in the days ahead? Well, again, uh, the ball is firmly, firmly in the court of government, our, our, our employer. But I'm asking um, what you would do. I'm asking what the union is going to do, not what government is going to do. If, if this status Well, it all remains. depends on what government's going to do, Mike. Um, you know, again, we assess week by week. Uh, you know, uh, my phone is literally in my hands almost 24-7, and yeah. uh, it takes a phone call to get us back to the table. They know what they need to say to us to get us back to the table, and they know what we need to see to get a deal. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you very much, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about last week's wolf escape at the Greater Vancouver Zoo. What a traumatic situation this was. Someone apparently cut a hole in the fence of the wolf enclosure there. What kind of knucklehead would do something like that if they thought they were doing these wolves a favor by setting them free? It was basically a death sentence for one of the wolves. One wolf found dead by the side of the road after someone cut a hole in the fence. Another wolf happily has been recovered here. Now, have a listen to this. We got a great panel standing by on this. First, have a listen to Manita Prasad here, who is a spokesperson for the Greater Vancouver Zoo. And here she is getting, you know, emotional after this happened last week. Have a listen to this. As a result 
of the senseless act, our wolf pack, sorry, has lost two family members. We were really hopeful for a positive outcome for all of the members of our wolf pack. But tragically, we were heartbroken this morning to discover Chia deceased on the side of the road of 264th Street. Our search and rescue operation continues and we are asking for the public's help to reunite Tempest with her family. Okay, uh, happily that other young wolf named Tempest was found and has been returned to the zoo. All right, let's discuss this now. This has now triggered another debate about zoos and whether they should be allowed to continue at all. There is a movement to shut zoos down in Canada and particularly right here in Vancouver. Let's discuss it. Both sides of it now for you. Jim Fassett, Executive Director of Canada's Accredited Zoos and Aquarium. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Pleasure to be back. Thanks a lot for doing this. Also on the line is Rebecca Bretter. Rebecca is an animal rights lawyer at Bretter Law, and I'm pleased to welcome her back too. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for the invite. Okay, thank you to both of you. Rebecca, let me go to you first. What did you think about this uh, this incident last week with the these this wolf escape at the zoo? Apparently an act of sabotage there. Your thoughts? Yes, I mean, I think what this really highlights is that what's really heartbreaking here is not the fact that someone sabotaged the enclosure, but what's heartbreaking is that it highlights how wolves are kept in captivity and at any given moment where they're given an opportunity to escape, they will. We know now, not from animal rights activists, not from just people who are against zoos, but we know from science that keeping animals in captivity deprives them of a positive, good welfare. It's essentially cruel, and it promotes immense amount of suffering for animals kept in captivity. And that's what this whole scenario with the wolves really highlighted. Okay, about your point about if, if they have an opportunity to escape, they will. My understanding is most of the wolves in that enclosure actually stayed inside the enclosure. First of all, why would you even have wolves here in captivity? What is the point of having wolves in captivity here in Vancouver when they need to be out in the wild? There's absolutely no conservation element or component to that at all. And fundamentally what it comes down to is that what zoos want to do, it's not conservation, it's not anything to promote the welfare of animals. The bottom line is that they want to generate money and revenue for themselves, and that's what it comes down to. It has nothing to to do with something positive for animals. All right, Jim Fassett, head of Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums. Jim, your thoughts? Well, um... It's uh, not necessarily surprising to hear what I just heard. The fact of the matter is that last week what took place was a criminal act. And that is the point. And it should not be lost. It was a criminal act on two fronts. Number one, somebody actually broke, had to pierce the perimeter fence up high, cut through it, jumped in overnight, and then by doing so endangered themselves by cutting open a habitat and endangered the, the public. This is something that should not be done. We've seen this before at Catholic Credit Facilities when, we're, when we had a facility that needed to shut down in New Brunswick. This kind of behavior cannot be condoned in any way. So I, I find it a little disheartening to hear, not to hear the fact that 
that this behavior what is not being condemned. This kind of behavior needs to be condemned, period, and stop. This kind of violence does not solve anything, number one. So having the animals in question at the Greater Vancouver Zoo and elsewhere in the care of humans actually goes a long way to contributing to the education of our visitors across Canada, and we have 12 million visitors each and every year. year. That's only one component. But the behavior of this needs to be condemned. It was unacceptable. It's not acceptable in any way, shape, or form. Okay, well, let me check with Rebecca on that. Rebecca, I assume you don't support, like, cutting a hole in the fence at a zoo. No, and I'm, of course I'm not. I'm not saying that yeah. this was not a criminal act. Of course yeah. it was. I mean, it would be foolish to say otherwise. But what this really highlights is the growing public outrage and sentiment that people are feeling, society is feeling in general, about keeping animals in captivity. The time has come for zoos to shut down. There's a reason why Bill S-241, also known as the Jane Goodall Act, um, is is in front of federal parliament now, which is a, a bill that is trying to prohibit the breeding and basically the keeping of some larger animals in captivity like elephants, great apes, bears, wolves, seals, and, and other animals. And the reason for that is because there's growing sentiment about how people feel that keeping animals in captivity is wrong. I mean, just look at the ban on cetaceans, right? We, have, we now have a ban across Canada from keeping whales and dolphins in captivity. And the same is going to happen. I have no doubt whether it's in the next year or in the next 10 years that we need to transfer the model from a zoo model to a sanctuary-based model. And if zoos really cared about animals, they would not be profiting off of their backs and keeping them in small places. Jim Fassett, what do you say to that? The need for zoos and aquariums and accredited, now I'm talking about accredited facilities in Canada, first off. And I can only speak for the 27 accredited members of CASA to begin with. Has probably never been more important, especially during this pandemic. We have seen immense public support through the number of visitors that are coming to accredited facilities across Canada over the last three years. There is a growing demand for learning and education, and we know this through our attendance. We know this through the fact that our members of CASA across Canada have increased their online training and educational programming with schools, school children across Canada and outside of Canada and around the world. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. The uh, act that uh, my colleague um, mentions is in second reading. Uh, CASA has an opinion that this act is, uh, needs significant amendments. It makes uh, a lot of things, a lot of statements that, frankly, are not the case at accredited zoos and facilities. Where there are facilities, zoological facilities in Canada that are not accredited by CASA, and there is any form of abuse going on, we do not support that at all. That's why one of our major mandates here at CASA is to grow CASA accreditation across Canada, which you have in the province of British Columbia, as you know. So at accredited facilities, you know, we don't stand for this. We have a very thorough uh, peer review-based process that uh, does not do anyone any favors by uh, having um, these kind of acts tolerated or, or any other form of, of abuse tolerated whatsoever. Rebecca, 
Rebecca Bretter, go yeah, ahead. Let, let, let me just say a couple of words about CASA for, for um, listeners who may not know what that is. CASA is Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums. And just to be clear, this is a private industry association that represents the interests of its private industry members. Of all its members, my understanding, there is only one veterinarian that is part of, of CASA that is a non-voting member. All other members are private industry. They're basically zoos and aquarius. So they are, they are watching themselves. And again, the bottom line is always profit. It has nothing to do with, with the welfare of animals. The accreditation standards for CASA are vague at best. They are not species-specific. Um, there's nothing specific like prescriptive requirements. What I mean by, by that, as an example, there's some, not quoting word for word, but as an example, when the description about what habitats require for animals, what CASA requires is habitats that include a full range of body motion and physical movement. Well, I'm sorry, but being able to physically move is not enough to establish okay. the well-being of an animal in captivity. Jim, Jim, not, quick, not to quick mention response. inspection only yeah. happens every five years with advance notice. And not to mention even one last point is yeah. that there have been numerous high-profile incidents at CASA a so-called accredited institutions, including the biting of a toddler, uh, 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 the toddler being bit by a bear in August 2019, summer of 2020, an emaciated moose here at the Vancouver Zoo that resulted in, uh, in the, the animal being euthanized. And that's only because someone who cared enough took a picture and let then there was get, an investigation. Quick, quick response from Jim, and then we got to fit a break in here. Jim, go ahead. Um, we... Our accreditation standards have been developed for over the past 40 years. We are a peer review based system like any other professional society. We use outcome-based protocols like to do in many other sectors, including transportation, engineering, and alike. We have a process uh, that we go through. Our standards are out there for the public to see and to read. And many other, facility, many other uh, accrediting bodies around the world use peer review and use outcome-based processes and whatnot. Okay. We so why not use animal welfare groups hang on, as hang on, part hang of on, the association? We continue to talk about that wolf escape at the Greater Vancouver Zoo last week, and the debate is on now. Should that zoo be shut down? Should all zoos in Canada be closed? My guests are Jim Fassett, Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, Rebecca Bretter, from Bretter Law. Let's go to your phone calls. Ramona in Kamloops. Hi, Ramona. Go ahead. Ramona. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Hi there. Hi. I, yeah, I believe there's a need for zoos. There's a, a good gene pool and for reintroduction of species that are lost in other areas from humans. So I strongly believe it. Just beef up the security and make the habitat more habitable for the animals. Rebecca, what do you I say to that? I Jews. Thank you. The vast majority, the vast majority of zoos aren't there to uh, to increase the gene pool and to reintroduce animals back into the wild. They're there for one sole purpose, which is to generate money for themselves by keeping animals in captivity. So people and kids, for a brief few seconds, can go, "Ooh, ah, that's so entertaining." I just wanted to say um, one thing about going back to the CASA point and and Jim's point about how it's a peer reviewed process. Again, let's be clear. I think it's a bit disingenuous to say 
quote, peer-reviewed. Peer-reviewed entails an objective uh, perspective. There's nothing objective about CASA. It is industry-led where they are keeping an eye on each other and promoting each other, again, okay. just to, to make money. And if if they really – there's so many incidents that happen. I'd really like to know Jim's explanation. How does he explain when you see a stellar sea lion repeatedly sucking on the ground of his enclosure, when you see sea otters repeatedly okay, let me, let me give on it, the edge of a, their tank? Let me give him a chance to respond here. Jim, go ahead. Sure. Um, first off, the assertion that um, zoos and aquariums exist for one purpose and one person only is false. Second, the idea that we don't reintroduce uh, animals into uh, more, na- some would say, more natural habitats is also false. Um, we have members across Casa, across Canada, that are doing this each and every day, and probably the most um, visible one that people may be able to identify with the most would be two cheetahs that came from a CASA accredited privately held facility in Hemingford, Quebec called Park Safari. They have been rehomed in Zimbabwe. And it's been a remarkable thing that they've done. And I think I could be wrong. It was the first time ever done, not only in Canada, but perhaps North America. So the, 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 the school of thought that suggests that CASA accredited facilities do not participate in this. It's plain and simply wrong. It's just not true. Let's go to Ann. review system. Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Go, well, go I'll ahead, Mike. squeeze in one more call here just in the interest of time because we've only got two minutes left. Ann in South Surrey. Ann, you got 30 seconds here to make your point, okay? Yes, hi. I just wanted to say I'm on Rebecca's side because I think there have been instances in the past where um, the Alder Grove Zoo has had um, animals uh, that have been badly treated and euthanized. She's absolutely right. But if they want to make, if it's a money-making, why not, like they do in the UK, have, like, they have the Lions of Longleat, where you stay in your car, but the animals are free to wander. And, um, and of course, you will drive around special tracks and uh, see the animals. Okay. I mean, you know? Okay. Okay, we only have one minute. We have one minute left, sadly, so I'll give each guest 30 seconds to sum up. Uh, Rebecca, go ahead. I'd like to see zoo shut down, uh, just period, and transfer to sanctuary-based model where animals are housed in natural habitats that are put together with suitable partners for stimulation and companionship where their environment is enriched. Keeping animals in captivity and giving them food, water, and dental and medical care is just not enough to ensure uh, their proper welfare. They need to be happy and thrive, and that is not what's happening in zoos right now. Go ahead, Jim. you got 30 seconds, too. Go ahead. Casa accredited facilities across Canada operate exceptional facilities where the animals in the care of human beings, in fact, do thrive, and they do do it exceptionally well. We have zoos, accredited zoos and aquariums in Canada have a role to play in society going forward, principally among those roles is educating, educating the public, and we're happy to, that we have 12 million visitors each and every year and want to equate them with 12 million inspectors each and every year. And we look forward to welcoming more going forward at our world-class facilities that are right. accredited by CASA here in Canada. Thank I you. Want to, I want to thank you both for a really good discussion. As always, Jim Fassett, Canada's zoos, accredited zoos and aquariums. Rebecca Bretter is an animal rights lawyer, Bretter Law. Thank you to both of you for, for doing this today. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the stranger attacks and the street violence that we're seeing on the streets of Vancouver these days. The latest one, a string of random stranger assaults on the streets of the city. I've got Vancouver Police Department Deputy Chief Howard Chow standing by to discuss this. First, have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. Police say a 70-year-old man was approached from behind in the 1800 block of Spyglass Place near the False Creek Seawall. He was pushed to the ground, punched and kicked several times by a stranger. Around 45 minutes later, a 33-year-old woman was walking her dog in a lane near West 11th Avenue and Spruce Street when police say she was also attacked from behind by a man she didn't know and this time punched in the face. Then just before 8.45 p.m., the VPD says a 23-year-old woman was standing at the corner of Alder Street and Broadway when she was stabbed from behind by a stranger. She was seriously injured but is expected to survive. The suspect was last seen heading south on Alder. Given the close proximity and nature of the attacks, Vancouver police are trying to determine if the same suspect was involved. All three cases, um, the description so far that we have is a man. We don't have anything further than that. Uh, But we we truly believe that all three were very violent in nature. And if anybody was in that area, they would have seen this happen. And so we need them to call police. That was the voice of Constable Tanya Vizentin there at the end, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Let's discuss this now with Howard Chow, the Deputy Chief of the VPD. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Howard, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, these these type of cases are always disturbing. We hear about the rise in the number of random stranger assaults on the streets of the city. And this particular sequence is is frightening for sure. I mean, you get three people assaulted within a three-hour period. Is there any update on that? Yeah, on that one. And and I think it's really important to point out, uh, generally speaking, on these types of assaults, on serious incidents, on the ones that are widely reported on by the media, uh, we've got pretty high success rate on that. And on this uh, trio of, of incidents that took place last week, it's uh, we've got a person of interest that uh, we're we're working on right now. So, um, and you know, the reason I put that out is 65 plus percent we've either identified, have somebody that we've charged, or somebody that uh, we're in the process of charging. Um, it's it's that other 35 percent that's challenging, and it could be because we got a victim who doesn't want to play, or we got witnesses that maybe. Uh, feel that their their bit of information isn't going to be helpful and don't and they don't bother calling it in, which is problematic. So, on cases like that, uh, and, and remarkably, a lot of people do call in and help and try to intervene when they can. But we just need more witnesses on incidents where they see um, some of these unprovoked assaults take place. Call it in. Call nine one one. Let us know so we can follow it up and we can get uh, whatever we can do to arrest these individuals. Right, and do you has there been an arrest in these cases? Not yet. Uh, like. There has been. There oh, okay, has been. there is an arrest. We're okay. still, yeah, it's uh, it's something that uh, we're still working through with our with our investigators. But I suspect you'll probably get some information on that uh, in the next few days or so. Okay, okay. Well, we're breaking some news here on that today. I mean, this is a disturbing string of assaults here in that False Creek area. Is that normally a safe part of the city? I mean, when you hear about just a woman walking her dog down the street a 70 year old man just walking down the street he gets attacked a woman who gets stabbed from behind 23 years old just minding her own business walking down the street i mean we're hearing about these things are are these happening in parts of the city where you know in the past you wouldn't expect something like this to happen 
I'd agree with you on that. I think historically, these areas you would not hear about some of these incidents. And this is what's so alarming uh, to the public is that, you know, individuals uh, are going about their day. They're either grocery shopping or taking the kids to the park, plugging a meter, minding their own business. And they're having these uh, random incidents take place to the tune of about four times a day, which is alarming for us, alarming for anybody. And I think that's what's uh, what's concerning. And so some of these incidents you're talking about, there isn't a day that goes by where I'm not, you know, reading or being briefed on something. We just had another one where where a couple is out with their daughter, on, you know, 8.30 in the morning in the downtown area, uh, and uh, a person throws a rock at one of them and hits dad to, to such force that it dislocated his shoulder. And wow. again, a, a random assault, something that just, you know, to no fault of, of mom, dad, or daughter, uh, this happened to them. So we're getting these things, which poses a huge concern for us. And, and it's a matter of raising the awareness and having people call it, call in incidents uh, when things like this happen. Right. And what, what would you say is driving this? I mean, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for someone to do something like this other than what people are going through psychotic incident incidences. There, there, there's mental illness on the street. There's, there drug addiction. There's drug addiction. In some cases, it's a combination of all of these factors. Is that what's driving this? I'd say you nailed it at the end. It's a constellation of a lot of those factors, uh, of people being pent up for two years because of COVID, of all the level of angst and stress that came with that, um, of uh, you know our systems, including uh, you know the criminal justice system, hasn't been as efficient as it typically would have been two years ago. Um, and uh, same with our health care, same with all of our uh, support systems out there. And we're finding more of this out on the streets. And and uh, some of our preliminary data probes that we've done would suggest that mental health does play a, a significant, um, you know, component to this, which, you know, that's something that we're continuing to ex- explore with our health partners as well. Yeah. Do you believe that we'll be exploring this in greater detail later on the show, by the way, about mental health services in, in the city and whether we need to reopen a large institution like like Riverview. We'll be talking about that later in the show today. I mean, what would what would you say as a frontline police officer and you see this type of thing happening on a daily basis in the city? Do we need more mental health facilities? Do we need more mental health services right now? We do. And this is something that we've said all along. We need better coordination of the facilities that we have. And I know it's a very challenging uh, space to be working in. And I think we've got some remarkable professionals in the mental health uh, field that are doing their best under the circumstances and in the health field. Uh, but I think really what um, you're saying and what everybody's saying is that we need to be able to scale that up because the challenge that we've got right now is 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 uh, you've got some individuals that are incorrigible, that it, they, you know because of no fault of their own or because of mental health issues they're suffering from, um, you know, they are continually being arrested by us and they're taken to a mental health facility in some cases, some cases they're taken to jail and they're back out again, uh, you know, a short time later. We've got some individuals that we've got five, six, seven hundred police interactions in their files and that's a problem. And it's a, it's a problem for our members that are having to deal with this, but uh, it's also a problem for those individuals because do we actually think it's more humane to have these these people at three o'clock in the morning in an alcove, um, you know, without any support services or protection that they need. And okay. so this is areas that truly does need, um, you know, more resources, more help, more coordination. 
When you, speaking to Howard Chow, Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department, when you describe a situation like that, I mean, that's just kind of a, a shocking number to think that there are individuals who have had 500, 600, 700 in, inter relations with the Vancouver Police Department. Like, what, can you go a little further into that? Like, wh what is a situation, you're talking about someone who was like, what, desperately addicted and mentally ill on the street, and they just continue to offend, reoffend over and over again, no matter how many times they're arrested? Is that what's going on? And that's exactly what's happening. And and also on those individuals, they're also more likely to be victimized. We know that uh, you're 15 times more likely to be victimized if you're homeless. You're 23 times more likely to be a victim of, of crime if you've got mental health issues. So not only are they out there struggling to live in, in uh, you know, the world they live in, but also that they're also the victims of, of crime and predatory um you know, offenders that are out there taking yeah. advantage of them. So that's, yeah. a, that's a huge concern. Let me ask you about another pressing issue in the city right now, and that is the uh, encampment on Hastings Street. And we did see the earlier enforcement order from the fire chief in the city to remove those tents and structures on the street. It appears a lot of them are still in place. What are your thoughts on that situation right now on Hastings Street? Because I've talked to a lot of people who've lived in that community for decades who say this is the worst they've ever seen. And I'd agree with them. I've been a police officer for 33 years in the city, and I'd say it's probably the worst worst I've seen. Um, and I think it's uh, so many, you know, a combination of so many issues that are going on down there. Um, you know, we've got, uh, uh, you know, if you get some individuals that are painting it as a life of ease down there, it's not. We're dealing with over 80-plus assaults that have taken place in the last six weeks in that three-and-a-half, four-block area. So can you imagine 80-plus assaults, let alone number of sex assaults, let alone of a dozen-plus stabbings in that short time, um, and also assaults against our officers. This has been crushing on all our, our staff. We've been working very closely with the city as well as with the province uh, to try to find, you know, how we can support or, or address some of these issues. But, you know, we've had nine officers that have been assaulted in the last six weeks there. One was just a, an officer in a passenger seat of a car stopped at a light with his window down. And for no reason at all, somebody came and struck him in the head with a pipe. You've had swarmings. We've had officers have coffee thrown on them. We've had officers that have been bitten, spat on, punched when they're responding to calls for service in that area. And I tell you, it's, it's exceptionally challenging, made even more challenging by some activists, not saying all, but some activists in the area that are in our officers' faces, shoot, uh, shoving cameras in their faces, um, you know, very borderline uh, harassing obstructionists, you know, when we're called there to deal with the call. And I think what people are forgetting is that there's residents, business people, there's other, and there's those in the encampment that want police there uh, or need police because of really violent issues that are taking place in, that, in those three or four blocks. And every time we're going there to help, we were, our, our officers are met with us, which is completely, you know, unacceptable. Now, last question for you, Deputy Chief. Like, what do you think the answer is to this situation right now? We are in an election year in this city right now. I think law and order, crime on the streets, random assaults are going to be top of mind for a lot of voters. Like, do we need more police officers right now? This is something we've been saying all along. Like, we're dealing with the same numbers we had in, in uh, 2009. Same officers on the ground. In 2009, when we've got a 13% increase in population, 
uh, increase in crime post-COVID, which we've seen, um, myths of a gang, or all that sort of stuff. Uh, but, you know, like whenever we talk about, you just mentioned a few minutes ago about increase in the mental health space, absolutely you should. But then you get others that will say, as long as you cut police. And you'll have mental health professionals that say, we can't do our job without the police there because of just the violent nature and the demographics of what they're having to deal with. So it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it's quite clear public safety is a concern and on the front of, of many of Vancouverites' minds over the last period. Um, and so, you know, we'll have to wait six weeks and see what happens there. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the crisis of mental illness on our streets now. And you just heard my conversation with Howard Chow, the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department, and his comments on the conditions, particularly on the downtown east side, which he said is the worst that he has ever seen in his 33 years as a police officer in the city of Vancouver. The rise of random assaults on the street, the drug overdose crisis, the sprawling encampment on Hastings Street that remains in place weeks after it was ordered to be shut down as a fire hazard by the city's fire chief. Deputy Vancouver Police Chief Howard Chow told me that he believes that unchecked and untreated mental illness is driving a lot of these problems. You heard that amazing call we had from a listener there, too, in the last half hour, who was a a former worker at the Riverview Hospital Institution for many years. And he believes that that large hospital should never have been shut down. It's interesting to hear from our politicians now who are talking about the possibility of opening another large scale institution to treat people who are suffering from mental illness. I've got Megan Davies standing by to discuss this from York University. Have a listen to this here first. Here's Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart about the shortage of mental health supports on the streets. Have a listen to this. There is a core of folks in the city that either need uh, more and and much deeper uh, mental health and addiction support. I think this is a longstanding issue that, uh, you know, uh, since Riverview was closed, for example, there was no answer to this. Okay, let's talk about Riverview Hospital now, its history, why it was shut down, and should an institution something like that be reopened in British Columbia once again? Let's discuss with my guest, Megan Davies, who's an historian at York University, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Megan, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, well, I'm happy to speak to this important issue. Yeah, we're happy to have you for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the history of Riverview Hospital. People may not be aware that that hospital was open open more than 100 years ago, right? Yes, Riverview opened in 1913, and its first name was actually the Hospital for the Mind. Wow. Um, Then it was known as Essendale till the 1960s. Um, and then its name was changed to Riverview, which is, of course, synonymous with so much of our swirling thoughts right now about what to do about um, the crisis in and um, and people who are in, in desperate need of supports. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's a was a huge institution, right? Like we were thousands of patients there, correct? Yes, I mean it was. I think of it as this vast village of madness you know they had their own school 
Um, they had uh, staff living quarters, a farm. Even the B- first BC Botanical Gardens was located in the grounds of Riverview. Yeah, and when did it reach its its largest sort of patient population? The, its peak patient population was in the 1950s, and it was hugely overcrowded. Um, and the numbers start to drop off in, in the 60s, but the big moves towards shifting people out of Riverview, um, out of long-stay patient, um, that aspect really happens in the late 70s in, in B.C., happens different times in different parts of Canada. But in, in B.C., Riverview shrinks most in the late 70s. Right. And this was a phenomenon we saw, like you said, similar things happen in other jurisdictions where these large institutions were downsized and in many, many cases shut down. Is that because there, were, there was documented uh, abuse of patients? Is that what was going on? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge um, topic, that. But yes, this was a shift across most Western uh, um, uh, global North nations, went through a period of deinstitutionalization of mental health services, partly um, because there were new uh, pharmaceutical options to mm-hmm. treat people outside of the institutions, partly because there was an idea that those long stays in institutions did not help and did not allow people a sense of agency. There was a new concept that um, mental health patients should have rights and that mental health should be destigmatized. Speaking of Megan Davies, she's a historian from York University, the history of Riverview Hospital. I mean, people will hear things about, you know, where patients subjected to things like electroshock treatments or or forced sterilizations. Did that happen at Riverview? I mean, certainly abuse of patients happened at Riverview. Those kind of abusive kind of treatments did happen at, at Riverview, Um for sure. And there were people that the place helped. I mean, there's always that nuance, right? But what I hear from older ex-mental health patients from that era, they didn't want to be in Riverview. They applauded the coming of community mental health, but they are appalled by the abject failure of community mental health as a project largely because of a lack of funding. Yeah, and this is one of the things that I recall, too, and sort of covering at the time the sort of the wind down and the closure of Riverview and other institutions like it, that there was, there was a lot of support for deinstitutionalization and closing these facilities and moving people into the community. And I thought that was a really interesting point you made there about the advances in, um, in pharmaceutical treatments. And maybe that was seen as part of the answer. But in retrospect, it seems like you often hear that people were they were deinstitutionalized. They were put back into the community, but with no supports. Is, is well, that is that what know, happened? Yeah. I mean, the the province could save so much money by shutting down Riverview. 
They did not, and this happened across Canada, that same amount of money that was saved by shutting institutions was not put into community care. And the World Health Organization has looked at this. You know, there were plans for high-quality community care and comprehensive services. Those were across the board not met. And then, of course, in the late 80s here in BC, we had the SOCREDS cutting welfare. In the 90s, Paul Martin, as minister, federal minister of finance, slashed what was then unemployment insurance. And we had, you know, just the real, these huge gaps in our social safety net here in Canada. So, I mean, I see what's happening in the downtown east side today as a long time coming. Like, that's been coming at us. This crisis has been coming at us and for decades. And as a society, we are so uncomfortable with those people, right? We want to, yeah. so we think, yeah, let's put them back in Riverview. Then we, you know, it may work for some, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm concerned it's because we don't want to face up to this, to look those people in the eye and really to say, what do you need? Or, you know, because it's, it's, it, we're, we failed as a society. We yeah. failed to take care of these vulnerable people. All right. Continuing our discussion about Riverview Hospital with the mental illness crisis we're seeing on the streets of Vancouver. Should a large institution like that be reopened in our province? My guest is Megan Davies from York University. Have a listen to this. This is Kevin Falcon, the leader of the opposition in the legislature in Victoria leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. And here he is talking about reopening a large mental health institution like Riverview. Have a listen to what he has to say here. We don't have to model them on the old model from the 1950s and 60s. There is a modern, compassionate, um, you know, uh, apartment-like setting approach that we can create where we get those with severe brain damage and mental illness the kind of proper care that they need with a goal of streaming them back into society with proper supports yeah. in the future. Now, some, I must tell you, will never you know, be able to go back into the streets. They're, the brain damage is, is so severe after so many repeated overdoses, et cetera. But, but the bottom line is we as a society do owe them a duty of care. And I think it is inhuman that we allow people to be left to their own devices on the streets. That's that BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon speaking to me on an earlier show. My guest is Megan Davies from York University. Megan, I'm curious your thoughts on there. The, the Liberal leader here talking about maybe reopening a large institution like Riverview, but you know a more modernized version of it, as he described there. What do you think of that? Well, I'm skeptical. I, I just i I think large institutions and humane care do not necessarily go together. And I'm curious to know whether he's actually spoken to any of the encampment residents and asked them, hello, what what do you need? And I, I know, you know, you're talking about people with deep and complex problems, but they're human beings. I, I can't help but think that putting them in an institution might be something that serves our needs for an ordered society that places we're comfortable rather than their needs. Um, you know, uh, yeah, that's just my my thought. I'm not sure about reopening Riverview. I'm yeah, not do sure. You, 
Do you therefore think that it was the right thing to do to shut Riverview down, but maybe the wrong thing to do to make, you know, to not give people the proper supports after they were deinstitutionalized? Oh, certainly. You know, um, I think that shutting Riverview, it was the moment in history. That was the, the moment that we were going to destigmatize mental health. So yeah. it's not seen as a, quote, illness. But there, there is this new idea that mental health existed on a continuum with all of us having the potential to move on that continuum um, rather than saying these are these ill people. I don't even like the term mental illness. In itself, it's very stigmatizing. Um, so I, I, feel, I feel I'm very leery of that. I'm, you know, what he's talking about would cost a lot of money. I'm I'm think that that's a good idea because it's such a big a big problem and we know from the pandemic that the state does have the resources it's not the case that they don't have the money because we have found the state moving forward to to find money to support people over the last 2 plus years so we you know to me that's some kind of proof for what is possible. What do you think could be a better path forward if it's not re- reopening a, a large-scale institutions? We talked earlier about some of the failures of community mental health. How do you think it could be done better? Well, these are my ideas, and I, I want to acknowledge I'm on the east side trying to, to help people. is a, is a very complex thing, right? But... In, um, in Toronto, we have two Gerstein centers that provide a kind of real asylum. Like they provide crisis care where the people who need the care are not pathologized and forced to take drugs that they don't want to go on or, you know, that they really just say, okay, you need a safe place off the streets where you can try to get yourself together. That seems to me to be hopeful um, in in Toronto. Also, there's some very promising moves to to shift out of having police provide um, these wellness checks or to be the frontline mental health care workers. I don't know when that happened, but I don't really think that police seem to have the particular tools for delivering mental health services. I'd like to see more social workers involved and peer support workers, people who themselves have mental health histories helping to support others. Um, it's, I, it's, interesting, it's interesting to hear the Toronto comparison for sure, because I think that sometimes in Vancouver, we look at the situation in our own city and say, wow, it's particularly bad here right now, worst we've ever seen. But would you say that uh, a lot of other major cities are going through similar, similar uh, circumstances right now? Well, it does seem to me that, you know, um, you know, a few years ago when I was in Nanaimo, they had a huge encampment there, and I know that it was problematic. Vancouver, with its temperate climate, the West Coast has always attracted a large population of, of transients, uh, yeah. like the encampment residents. Um, but I, I, I just, you know, I'm always looking for promising practices, and both those Toronto initiatives seem to me to be a good thing. I know that the city worked 
over the past um, couple of years to to offer encampment residents um, longer-term housing, uh, stable housing solutions um, with the kinds of supports that they would need. But it's complex. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it is complex for sure. Thank you for coming on today with your thoughts about it. I really appreciate it. Yes. Well, it's a human rights issue, right? And it's and it's not their problem. It's all of our problems. But I appreciate the opportunity to um, speak my mind on this important issue. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.